And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's the Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of the Rodcast, David Steele. Well, all right, now we are talking Larry Babb. I don't know how you do it. How about that intro, folks? Thanks for that, Larry. I've said it a million times. Larry Babb, the most consistent part of the Rodcast. <laughs> Thank you for that intro, Larry. We appreciate it. And welcome, one and all, to the Rodcast I am your host, David Steele, and we are, as always, brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And here we are again with yet another very special show. And although I'm, I'm sure I say that every time, but I'm also, you know, I'm also happy to say that it's always true. And uh, that's just because of the people that we that we get to talk with and then pass along to you, our listeners you know, even if sometimes an episode is a bit of an in memoriam like we have today. Yes, uh, sadly, today's truly wonderful guest, Don Montgomery, passed away just weeks ago at the age of 88. And we continue to be shocked and saddened by this. I, for one, can tell you that it, it was particularly shocking. I had just spent time with Don less than, uh, I guess, about less than a month before at our annual American Hot Rod Foundation Advisory Board meeting. Don was in, was in great spirits and was telling everyone how excited he was uh, to be receiving a new knee. He was getting a knee replacement the following day, uh, which was something that really made us appreciate even more the fact that he took the time to, to make our meeting. So, you know, just another example of Don's dedication to our cause and to preserving hot rod history in general. I'd like to to think that anyone listening to this would have one or maybe even all of Don's books on their shelves. Certainly if you're if you're any fan of hot rod history, you probably do and if you don't, well, it's time to correct that as his collection of work is mandatory for having a real understanding of what it was like to be a hot rodder in the 40s and the 50s. And it's all delivered to you by a guy who really was there, who was living and breathing this stuff in the immediate post-war years, both on the dry lakes and in early drag racing. So run out and get yourself uh, the full collection. You will not regret it. Now, as some of you regular listeners know, I grew up in the car hobby, but I certainly didn't grow up with flathead-powered Ford-based hot rods. Uh, my dad uh, was a super serious car guy, and he may have had a 34 Ford one-ton truck that did have a 59AB in it, but it was a stalker other than the engine, and, and it was something that rarely left our property in our little town of Eden, New York. California-style hot rods were nowhere to be seen. 
during my early years, and it it would be the, I guess you'd call it the one-two punch of Don's first book and then the Bachelor book, The American Hot Rod, that would forever turn my head towards this type of car and interest. And I'm happy to say I made sure that I got to relay this to Don uh, when we spoke. And this is something you'll hear in this episode. Not that I was the first guy in my age group to get to thank him, but I knew I couldn't leave this interview session without expressing that to him. And again, I'm glad I did, even though I think it made him squirm (laughs) a little. Um, As Don's grandson, Jeff, uh, expressed to me recently, he said, you know, my grandfather was so humble about what he was involved with and the work he accomplished that he he really didn't take compliments well. So as you'll hear, that's true, but that's also why those who knew Don thought so highly of him. He was just a truly exceptional human being, just plain good, and with a full complement of admirable traits. You know, nothing fancy with Don. Uh, never an agenda, and he just quietly walked around, leading by example. My favorite kind of person. But, you know, he just did what he did because he thought it was a good thing to do. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, it might help to keep some of this history from fading away, you know, if it reached a few people. And, well, it reached me, that's for sure. And I'll forever be in debt to Don for helping to launch my obsession into this form of the car hobby. And I know I'm not alone in this. So so thank you, Don Montgomery, from all of us hot rod enthusiasts, for all you did for this great revivalist hot rod movement that we all get to enjoy and partake in, and really for simply just being one of the better human beings. Because that last bit is really what matters. So yeah. So without further ado, sit back and enjoy our interview with the late, great Don Montgomery. Well, first of all, thank you for taking the time. I'm happy to do it. Oh, we appreciate it. We kind of always start with the rudest question of all. Where were you born and when? (laughs) I was born in Los Angeles in 1930. I raised uh, mostly in Los Angeles until I was 12. My father had been uh, killed in an auto accident when I was less than a year old. So my mother had a tough time trying to take care of me, and I lived with several families in different places. Then uh, she uh, made an arrangement with a, a friend uh, whose wife died and uh, to help take care of his kids and we moved to Arcadia and uh, so we lived there for a few years and then we moved to Pasadena and then to La Cunata actually and by the time I was getting involved with cars and everything we were it actually at La Cunata by then so it's going to Pasadena schools went to John Muir Junior College there, and uh, then went to USC after that. 
I was fortunate to get a uh, driver's license when I was 15. At, the, at that time, you could do that. And uh, so I got a driver's license when I was 15. The best part about that was that uh, I was going to uh, a junior high school in Pasadena uh, in the 10th grade. Their school went to the 10th grade. And uh, one of the requirements was that you take a driver's ed class and I already had my license. <laughs> so it was sort of like a, a no-brainer to just walk through that class, you know, without great effort. Yeah. But, uh, because the object of the class was to prepare you to get a license, you know. So today, I guess most kids don't want cars, so they don't teach that anymore, I guess. I mm. don't know what the deal on that is. But anyway, you know, I... Uh, I got a Model A when I was 15 and, and uh, drove that for a year or so and then wanted to get a, uh, uh, quote, faster car, unquote, something like a 36 Ford. That would have been 1945, you know. And uh, my parents, my father, was a little afraid that... Uh, I would just hop it up and, you know, work on it and so forth. And so we sold the Model A and then uh, a little hesitant to have me buy a 36 or something like that. And ended up that he ended up selling me for the price of the Model A, his Hudson four-door sedan that he'd replaced with a, with a Chrysler, you know, and so... So I had this Hudson four-door sedan, which was nowhere on the list of things I really wanted to have, <laughs> but it was wheels. Yeah. So I just proceeded to try and hop it up, and uh, I uh, did everything I could. There's no speed equipment for Hudsons. In fact, there not a lot of speed equipment at all back in those days. There were, you know, flathead stuffs had heads and manifolds and cams and ignitions, but... Uh, other things, Chevrolets had, six-cylinder Chevrolets had manifolds. And, but so I fooled around and I built a four-carburetor manifold and I built headers and did a bunch of stuff to the Hudson and uh, uh, joined the Velociteers. Well, I joined a, a, a Lakes Club beforehand uh, in 1948 when Rosetta started as a timing association and we joined the club well the club I I joined really didn't have too many racers in it and so it sort of folded after about less than a year and uh, so then I joined the Velociteers this is Rosetta incidentally because mm -hmm. SCTA didn't run coupes and sedans at the time and uh, do you remember what the name of that first club was did it have a name it was called the Saints and it was a, a group, actually, I met through John Muir Junior College. Some of the guys there got into it. And most of them ended up not really being racers. The only one that was in it for a little while that was a racer was Don Nicholson. Um, but uh, it, like I say, it just sort of faded away. We all hang around, hung out at drive-ins, you know. We knew each other and all good friends and everything, except, you know, with, with hot rudders, some guys really are more into racing and some guys really aren't, 
you know, and mm-hmm. and most of these guys weren't good guys though. And so I ended up joining the Velociteers, which is a club out in Glendora, so I could keep racing. And so I finished the 48 season with the Velociteers, and then unfortunately the car didn't go very fast. I was hoping it was a sedan class car. I was hoping to go 100 right off. Well, it didn't. It went 91 right off, and then it went 92, and I think 93 was as good as I got out of the Hudson engine. And, but we street raced it, and I uh, <coughs> filled in some of the chrome and, and put a sunken plate on it and had skirts, and, and I worked a deal with a body shop that he painted, and I worked doing gopher work and everything for him and Hmm. uh so the car actually looked pretty good it was sort of a mild custom but not too many people excited about mild custom 41 hudson sedans (laughs) this is before the hornet and the twin h power and all that stuff was going on with with hudson wasn't it yeah the the hornet you know that step down hudson came out in 48 Mm-hmm. So this would be at that same time. But yeah, this wasn't that kind of car. This was like the 41 style cars, you know, but it was my car, you know. So I hopped it up, ran it 93, I think was the best it got at the lakes. And it was, and drags hadn't started yet, but we were street racing it. And it was a fair street racer, but not really fast. 93 at the lakes isn't bad for a big well, full-bodied car. It wasn't great, but the sedans were just starting to come in then, and, and uh, coupes and sedans. And so uh, the only uh, memorable time, if you want to call it that, is uh, I was at a drive-in one night with it in Pasadena. And, and Don Nicholson came in with his 34 sedan, which was a uh, strip sedan with a hopped up Chevy in it, you know, and he chews me off to race. And I figured, well, what can I lose other than losing? (laughs) (laughs) And he blew me off by half the length of the street, (laughs) you know, bad, you know, but that that was my memorable thing. Anyway, one night at, uh, we were racing out of Carpenters in in Arcadia, the drive in there, we hung out. And uh, Hudson expired through a rod. I had friends, and some of the guys that were in that Saints Club had old Buicks. They had 41 and 38 Buicks, centuries. And those things went pretty fast for a stock car. And uh, so the end result is I decided, why fool with a Hudson? I'll put a Buick in there. And so I got an engine and, and put it in and... I'll tell you, I was just a runny-nosed kid, and and uh, the installation and everything, I don't even know how I did it anymore, <laughs> you know. Put the straight-eight Buick in it, and right off it went 103 at the lakes, and, and then I started hopping it up and everything. And By the time we were done, uh, Hudson had progressed into a race car, basically, because drag racing had started in 1950, and we started racing with that. And... Um, it um, ran the Hudson through 1951, and at the lakes, at the last lakes meet, it went 129.96. Mm. 
which was was good for it. But unfortunately, it was in a strip sedan class, so the best it got, I think, was a third place or something. And the top sedans were going 140, <laughs> you mm. know. And, and that was that was still with the Buick Straight Eight. Yeah, and uh, by yeah. then, you know, I had <coughs> progressed to to four carburetors and then six carburetors and and flexi headers and you know all that kind of stuff i started out with esky cams and um, joe paisano had, had said you gotta he was a buick guy you know and he says oh you gotta put an esky in there and you know, so i went down and ed drawn me a cam you know and that ran good in the meantime i had joined the gcrc the glendale Cooper roadster club late 49 i guess in 49 and uh, uh, those guys were all Howard guys, and they knew Howard. And Howard actually ran in the club, Howard Johansson. And so we ended up switching to a Howard cam uh, later on, you know. And Howard called it the awful, awful grind, you know. You know, when I said, what is it? And he said, that's the awful, awful grind. So <laughs> Howard was a neat guy, you know. And uh, then... Uh, you know, the car ran good. It went 106 at the drags, won numerous trophies, you know, uh, running Santa Ana and Saugus. We towed it up to Lodi in Northern California and ran up there and, and uh, um, had, a lot of, had a lot of fun with it. It was, it was successful as it was, you know. It was too heavy, though. And uh, a friend of mine, Tom McLaughlin, had a, whose nickname was ACMO, uh, was in the GCRC, a good friend. And he start, he bought a cord, and he was racing a cord, and he had a jimmy in it. And uh, and he set the record uh, uh, nah, I'm not sure if he kept the record, but, but he broke the record with it, you know, in 1950. And uh, 51, he ran it. And then he decided to build a Gram, and the Grams were lighter than the cords. You know, the cords were front-wheel drive, and they were a heavy car. And Gram was the same basic body with a different front end, and it was a lot lighter. And so he decided to build one. And uh, so I bought the cord from him, the idea being to have a car that was a little uh, less frontal area to run the lakes. Mm -hmm. And so I bought the cord and dropped my Buick in the cord and uh, uh, had a successful season. It went 137 and uh, set the ended up with the B sedan record in, in, uh, at Rosetta for the 1952 season and uh, ended up number two in the association. I would have tied for number one, but the last meet, ACMO was running his Graham, and ah. he, he went a mile an hour faster than I did. <laughs> so he shut me out of time for number one. Had good success with it. The Cord went 107 at the drags, and uh, still a heavy car. And But we ran it in, in 652 with the Buick and went 137, had the record. And... Partly because of that, I guess, they uh, changed the rules of the class to put a limit on engine size. The Buick was 350 inches. And uh, so they put the inch class down to 305. 
and uh, for B sedan. So the Buick was was out, you know, from that standpoint. So Howard was fooling around with Jimmy's then, and and he had made a twelve port head, of which he only made about a half a dozen of. And so I talked to him, and he says, "Well, why don't you run this thing, you know?" And so I bought a, a block and crank and head and everything from Howard and, and built a Jimmy and put it in there. So we ran the Jimmy from uh, for 1953 season. And the Jimmy went 135 and uh, ended up with a record, too. So, But I had a little more trouble with the Jimmy breaking things. <laughs> but it was it was good at the drags. It went 107. And uh, and what was the rest of the drivetrain in that car? Uh, with the, they both had, uh, either Buick or Jimmy had a Pontiac rear end. And the Buick and the Jimmy both had Buick transmissions had uh, the big Buick transmissions, uh, which, if you look at them, are almost identical to the early CAD transmissions, except their shifting was different. Interesting on that one, when I put the Buick in the Hudson, the uh, Hudson had a shifter that had one lever and a cable. When you pulled it up, it pulled the cable, and... So that was, you know, it didn't work with like Ford transmissions or something like that. But Buick had a, the 39 Buick, when they first went to column shift, they had a deal like that. So I said, that'll work. So I got a 39 Buick trans and put it in and everything was great until I started the car up. And I found out that where the Hudson pulled, the Buick pushed on the cable. Uh So I ended up with an upside down shift pattern. Uh, and this was where on the car. High would normally be was reverse. Oh my gosh! And where, where reverse, where uh, first would be actually uh, normally would be was actually where am I? Here? Second, I oh. guess. Yeah, I got it backwards again. Yeah, I'd be second. And so you had this pattern, you know, where you go like this and back, which was a little. You had to remember when you were street racing. It didn't matter otherwise for drag racing, it remembered. Anyway, the Hudson ran good. Uh, the Buick ran fine. And, and by the 53 season, I was drag racing a lot. And drag racing was becoming very popular because, you know, with drag racing, you could run almost every week. Whereas lake racing, there were only like six meets a year. And uh, plus you had to drive all the way up there and... And it seemed like quite a trip today. It's not much of a trip, but it mm. seemed like it then, you know. But so I was doing more drag racing, and, and I decided, you know, I think I'll build a drag car. And so I was looking around what to do. I had looked earlier. I'd bought a 32 Vicky body, and I was going to build that. And I, I, I didn't get to it. And then Larry Shinoda decided he would sell his 32 because he wanted to build a roadster. And uh, so he'd been running it as a stripped coupe and uh, with a flathead that Bruce Robinson owned. And uh, so... The Chopstick Special. Uh, yeah, that's the car. It was, he told me that... Uh, or one of them anyway. He'd gotten the, the body and 
frame and maybe more, I don't know, maybe a chassis from, uh, from a guy he called Chinaman Lee, who owed him money. And he said Chinaman Lee had chopped it. And the chop was pretty good. It was nicely done. And uh, so anyway, I got it from Larry. It, it was just a, a rolling body uh, front end. I didn't get the rear end that was under it. And uh, so I, I took it. By then I was married. And uh, we were living in an apartment. So I ended up uh, trying to fix a car up at my wife's parents' house, which didn't work real well because they didn't have a lot of room. But I've got some pictures of it sitting there with the lettering and everything the way it was when Larry, when Larry, Larry had it, you know, it was primer and, and they'd put numbers and stuff on it. It, it, uh, it wasn't as nice looking as it is today, <laughs> you know, but, uh, um, I put my Jimmy in it and, and the Buick Trance, and I put a Pontiac rear end under it, and, and uh, took it out with that, and ran it a few times that way, and then I found fenders for it, and I wanted fenders because the fuel coupe class was a stock-bodied class on fuel. You were allowed a modification like chopping or channeling, but. Uh, that was it. You had to have fenders and everything. So I built it for that class. And uh, cars started out running not as good as I wanted. And I went down to Howard and I said, hey, this thing's not working right. You know, and, and we had put a, a cam that he'd been using as DeSoto's, you know, Howard was into DeSoto's and he had a racing boat. And, and if you ever want to look at history, you want to look at his racing boat history. You know, it's mm. interesting. Mm. But uh, we put the cam in. It was just uh, too slow in action for the Jimmy. And, and the thing just didn't sound good. And uh, so we put it, he said, bring it down and put it on the dyno. So I put the engine on the dyno down there and, and we changed cams and a couple of times and got it running better and put it back in the car and the car picked up about five miles an hour. And, and then it was running pretty good. We were going to Saugus, we were going to Santa Ana, we were going to Pomona was open by then and, uh, um, go to Bakersfield and, um, Kern County then, you know, and uh, cars started off running around 114, then it worked its way up to, uh, 118, 120, and uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm, no, that's right, I'm talking to Jimmy, yeah, and uh, yeah, and finally it set records, uh, Pomona and, and Saugus and and Santa Ana and everything. And the best it went was 121. Even won a couple of top eliminators with it. You mm. know. And uh, mm. I raced at Saugus when it went 121. I raced Don Rackman with Baney's sponsored Roadster, you know. And the, his was just a strip Roadster. Mine was a fendered coupe. And I got through that. And, and uh, I was going to SC at the time. And... Uh, Joe Paisano had a, and Carmen Paisano had a gas station on Vermont, I think it was. And between classes, sometimes I'd go over there. And, <laughs> and I went over there, and they were razzing Rackman over there about me beating him. <laughs> Got sort of a kick out of that. 
But uh, the uh, anyway, I, I raced at Pomona one day, and and I I went like oh I don't know I went 120, but Don Armstrong was there with with uh, Genian's Chrysler in a 34 coupe. The thing went 121 right off the bat, you know, and I thought. Hey man, they're coming. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because by then the Chryslers were starting to show up, and uh, the dragsters were all starting to get them, and uh, even Chrisman was fooling with them. And, yeah. Uh, so I decided I better build a Chrysler, and so I built a Chrysler, and uh, I had um, I hung out in uh, back slightly. I hung out in Glendale uh, there. I was in the Glendale Cooper Roacher Club, and and I'd go down every Saturday and have lunch with ACMO down there. And, and uh, then, of course, Sundays we all met at the drive-in their restaurant. And one day I was down down in Glendale, and uh, uh, somebody said that, uh, hey, they're selling a bunch of Scott blowers. And uh, apparently, I think John Edgar had imported a bunch of Scott blowers you know, they were the next model after the Tala Mechanica, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said they, they're selling a bunch of them off cheap, you know. So I contacted the guy that was doing it, and, and yeah, he had some. And so I talked to Blair. Don, Don Blair sponsored my car a lot. And I'd known Don forever. And uh, I said, you want some of these things? I can get them for... I forget what they were. They were maybe seventy-five for Fords and a hundred for for Cadillac Oldsmobile ones. And he says, "Yeah, I'll take some." So I went over and I th- I forgot exactly how many I bought. I bought one for a Cadillac, and I bought four or five for Fords. And I sold the four or five to Don, you know, and that. I believe paid for the Cadillac one for me, and I had it, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it, you know, until I decided to build the Chrysler, and I decided, well, I'll just put this on the Chrysler, and so I bought a Chrysler surplus engine from Nash Osborne, and they were selling those things. It was an industrial 331 Chrysler with a long bell housing, and that was what was, I mean, think about this was. Uh, 54 beginning of 54 so the later chrysler's word is available and and uh, i got um, wyan gave me a four carburetor manifold and i built a log on top of that and then put the blower on top of that and uh, um, i got it all together and and howard got me a cam and, and i was didn't know what I had. You know, I used a Gilmer belt drive. They were because Don Yates had used one. And if you look at a real old rotten custom, there's a picture of a flathead with an Arden, I think, with a blower on it with a Gilmer belt drive. And that would have been probably 53, something like that. And I thought, well, that looks like a great idea, you know. So I, I built a belt drive. They only had two-inch two belts available. And the only pulleys were industrial steel pulleys. So I got some of those and machined it to fit. And, and uh, I didn't know what I, was, what I had, you know, power-wise and everything, what, what was going to come out. 
and Tom Cobbs was in our club then too, and he was a part owner of the dyno with uh, Engel and uh, Hillborn behind Engel's shop. So I talked to Tom and I said, "Hey, can I can I run on the dyno?" And and you know, and he charged me obviously, you know, but we put the engine in the dyno and. Uh, the first day we got it on there and I had just mounted the blower, you know what a Scott looked like with the snout sticking out and I just mounted it normally and I put this thing on, uh, fired it up and it didn't take very long before the Gilmer belt drive bent the, bent the snout of the blower, cracked mm, it, mm. you know, and uh, so, so we were off. Yeah, and that, and I had to weld the snout back up on the blower and put a couple of brackets out front to hold the front end of it. And uh, probably with V-belts, it wouldn't have been a problem. They wouldn't have had enough of a, uh, a catch on it, so to speak. And so I did that, and then we went back down and put it on the dyno, and, and uh I was pleased the thing I put out over 400 horsepower on alcohol. At the time, that was pretty good, you know. And uh, so we put it in the car, and the car went 120 on alcohol right away, you know. And then I started experimenting with nitro. I, you know, I didn't, I had stock rods and all that stuff in it, and I was a little hesitant to push it too hard. And, uh, you know, some of the other guys, particularly all the Orange County guys running Santa Ana, were up into the 90%. <laughs> and Mooney yeah. was in the 90% or 95%, you know. Oh and uh, um, <laughs> so I, I experimented and I worked my way up to 50%. The car was very successful. We won a bunch of races. And, uh, um, and like I said, uh, by then, you know, we were. There weren't a lot of fuel coupes around, and it was often you, you go to a drag race and you'd be the only one there, or there'd be one or two others there. And so I talked to C.J. Hart, and I said, hey, can, can we have just a, a meet for featuring these cars? You know? And he says, yeah, we can do that. You know, So we set up a fuel coupe meet, the, the first invitational fuel coupe meeting. And I called around trying to find everybody who had a fuel coupe and there weren't really a lot of them by then. And, mm. uh, but we got, I think we got nine cars, you know. And we had Mooneyham and uh, Stecker, uh, Eulen Stecker, the San Pedro muffler car, and Jack Christman, and uh, uh, a car that wasn't the bean baddest, but it was part of Martinez out of San Diego, you know, and, and, uh, oh, what's his name out of Pomona? That old timer disease, uh, car that still exists. Uh, it's, I'll, I'll remember it in about an hour. What, what kind of car was it? 34, uh, full fender 34. It runs as an altered down. The guy still owns it. And he's in Pomona. and The uh, same guy owns it now that owned it yeah, then. Yeah, the same guy that owns it. I just can't remember his name. It's a nice car. It's got a, got a Chrysler in it. And uh, he's run it occasionally. Not competitively, just uh, exhibition type stuff. 
anyway, we had a good field and we had some good racing. And, uh, and, and what year would this have been that you had? That this? was 56, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, CJ made us up some clock trophies, you know, and, uh, we got good press from drag news and everything. A one shot deal really, you know, because then they banned fuel <laughs> next year. And, uh, uh, Boy, I had a lot of fun with the car, and uh, that 32, you know, was my most successful car, I guess. You know, it uh, uh, rarely lost. I won a top eliminator uh, at, at uh, Inyo Kern, the race, uh, uh, the Ranger-powered dragster, you know. Mm. And I raced Hashem's Roadster up there, Ernie Hashem's thing, you know. And uh, But it went... Went 133 up there, and and they gave me a time of 10:28, but I don't really think that was correct. I don't. I think it was sort of a fast time. I I got two times up there. Was one was 10:28, and the other was 10:50 or something like that. And it was like a record and all that stuff. But I honestly don't feel it was correct time. I don't think the car was capable of running that quick at the time. Because, you know, we were spinning tires and, yeah, and so forth. Anyway, car was uh, a lot of fun, band fuel. Uh, I didn't know what to do, so I ended up uh, selling the car and, and buying a Willys from the local wrecking yard in Burbank and uh, paid $35 for the Willys. Everything but the engine, I had to give them the engine back. And which I did happily. Yeah, because it uh, just had a four-cylinder in it, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know, and I. So I by that time I was living in La Cunada, and uh, what year was the Willys? And, uh, what year did I get it? What year was the Will? What year? Nineteen forty-one. Forty-one. Forty-one Willys, and uh, it was a, it was a fairly fairly decent car, you know, and uh, uh, so I. Put a Pontiac rear end in it and, and uh, put the uh, Chrysler in it with a Buick transmission and uh, with the blower. I had built my own injectors and uh, I had used them on fuel. But when I tried to use them on gas, they were, they, they were a little difficult to get working right. And so I put carburetors on it. Phil Wyan made a uh, an adapter for a 471 to take six carburetors. So he gave me one of those, and so I put that on, you know, on the Scott blower and, uh, and ran it that way for a while. And uh, it, it typically ran a gas because there was no supercharged class then. The superchargers bumped you a class, and the car was really a B-class car with weight and everything. But I put it into A-gas, and it wasn't quite as competitive because some of the A-gas cars now were going, oh, up around 125, 130. You know, one out of Texas, and uh, and of course, K.S. Pittman and Stonewoods and Cook were starting moving up into that. And then, but then in 60, NHRA started the supercharged classes. So uh, the car went into B-gas supercharge. 
and uh, didn't have to race the the A-gas cars all had 455 Oldsmobiles and 454 Chryslers in them, whatever, you know, stroke crank and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I only had a 331. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, so, so I ran B-gas, and, and uh, we went, uh, and we were running on gas, so best we were doing was up around 119 was the best I did in 19... 19- 60, I think it was, and actually broke the BGAS NHI record and and had it for a few minutes, but uh, a fellow back east also broke it, <laughs> mm. and he broke it more than I broke it, so so that was my fame on that. And this is still with the Buick transmission? Yeah, yeah. And, s- and stock internals in the Chrysler? Or I'm sorry? Stock internal, like stock rods, or had you gone to aftermarket rods? No, and... it still had Chrysler. Uh, it had, it had Oldsmobile rods. Yeah, put Oldsmobile rods in it. But, uh, yeah. Uh, about that time, though, I'd switched to Vanolia pistons and uh, still had Howard cams. And uh, other than that, the motor was fairly stock. You know, and uh, we ran it that way by this time, you know, I was uh, I was working now. I was out of school, and, and uh, by 1960, I had three kids, so there were other things to do. So drag mm. racing was really just a hobby for me. I kept doing it and uh, enjoying it, and trying to make the car go faster, but I was sort of falling behind. Uh, the competition because these guys were really putting efforts into it. For example, I built this Willys, uh, started racing 59 with it by, uh, and you know, when they, when the class was first organized, it had to be a street legal car, including windshield wipers and mufflers and full upholstery and all that stuff, headlights, you name it. And I built it that way. It had everything, you know. And But somewhere around 62, we started to see the uh, uh, open racers, for lack of a better term, guys like Stonewoods and Cook that, and KS uh, that were building race cars, actually taking the willies and and they forgot the the windshield wipers and the mufflers and all that and i understand that i'm not complaining about it but it was changing so that these cars were getting faster and faster and i was having trouble keeping up you know type of thing and then of course around 64 and 65 you saw the advent of the uh, smaller cars the austins and the anglias coming out and uh and of course, they weren't legal then by NHRA rules. But by then in Southern California, the interest in um, certain classes like uh, A-gas supercharge classes was booming. You know, the shows, the strips were having races for A-gas supercharge cars and, and Drag News was featuring them and everything. Mm. And some of the guys like Skip Hess and, and uh, the Kohler brothers and everything came out with Anglias. Initially, you know, the Anglias had small blocks in them. And, uh, 
and the NHRA, finally, there were getting to be so many of them because they were racing out here. Even if they couldn't race NHRA uh, uh, classes, they were running out here because the strips were letting them run. They were a good show. You yeah. Know? So yeah. so that was stepping everything up. And then finally, NHRA uh, allowed uh, Anglias with small blocks in them. And, of course, a little bit later, it wasn't long before big blocks were in them, you know, and <laughs> it was changing, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and so my car was really becoming obsolete. But, you know, it was really just a hobby for me. And uh, so, so I was racing and trying to improve it. And uh, it, uh, it ran pretty good, but it wasn't as competitive. And uh, so, and I didn't really like... Um, uh, back up on that toward the later 60s around 67 you know the NHRA had gone pretty much to their their um, super eliminator style things where the classes weren't running themselves very much the cars were just running in the eliminator brackets and I really didn't care for that I I like racing like cars instead of handicapped against a dragster or whatever you know? yeah yeah so i i talked to a couple of the strips about running b-gas supercharge shows of like a four car show because the strips already were running a gas supercharge shows four and eight car shows and and they were running in injected funny car shows and they were running top gas shows and of course dragster shows and so a typical weekend of this trip, they might feature a, a top gas dragster show with maybe a fuel altered show too, and then also run their other classes and everything. And then each week it would change. It would be different shows. And so I talked to some of them about running B-Gas, and we were able to start running as sort of a, a lower class show, sort of a fill-in show, if you will where mm. we could run these things. And, and we I'd run it round robin. You know, all, all four cars would race both rounds type thing. And uh, and they'd all get a little money. Not a lot, but a little. And uh, plus you get treated well. You know, you'd be part of the show. You weren't just, just uh, the average guy coming in to pay his fare. You know, you, they'd let you in and... and You'd you'd run the car down the dragster staging lanes instead of the uh, stand in line with all the rest of the cars, you know. So so I like that type thing, and we we had a a good year running a bunch of them, and then it got better the next year, and we graduated to eight car shows, and we ran ran strips like uh, Santa Ana and uh, ran Fontana and uh, even ran uh, Holtville, ran Las Vegas, ran Sacramento, you know. So actually in 69, I think we ran 39 shows out of 52 weekends, you know. So so it wasn't bad. I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't win most of them any of them i think i won one of them you know because i was racing against cars now they're a little faster my car did go 144 which for a b supercar then was a good speed uh except you know the little cars now like steve wood's uh, prefect and stuff were going close to 150 you know 
but uh, but I was having fun. You know, we were running the show, and and the strips were treating us nicely. You know, they were paying us a little money, and and uh, uh, not treating us like regular people. You know, so I liked that. And but then the the energy crunch came in '72, and all the strips backed off, and I couldn't get any more shows, and uh, they were downsizing into drag race into bracket racing strictly you know because it was cheaper for him and um and the other guys couldn't get shows either <laughs> you know mm. the top fuel could top fuel and top gas a little bit at long beach but uh, so i tell people my wife says what are we doing this for mm. you know and mm. uh, and i said you're right you know we'd done it a long time and and so i backed off Oh, you know, I enjoyed drag racing. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I didn't accomplish any more than a lot of other people did, and a lot of people accomplished a lot more. I met a lot of people. It was it raced against a lot of people, and uh, uh, interestingly, though, when you're racing, you don't always know all these guys. You know, they're the other guys. You know. Mm. Later on, you you get to know them all, and it turns out they're really nice guys too. <laughs> but um, but it was fun, you know. And uh, then, you know, I'm I'm an engineer, or I was an engineer, and and uh, so when I quit racing, I decided to build a street run, and uh, just because I en- always enjoyed that stuff anyway. So I parked the Willys, I sold the engine and trance out of it. And, uh, looking around to buy a street ride, and I made a list of all these things like 32 Fords and 34 Fords and stuff. And, and I tried to trace my old 32 down, and like I, I commented, uh, I traced it within a year and then lost it. Hmm. And I never did find it. And uh, so... And what, what year is this now that you're now thinking? 70, I, 72. 72? Yeah. And uh, in 74, we moved down here uh, from La Cunada. We moved down here. And uh, so I had been looking for something to buy. I had the Willys, and it was just parked in the garage, you know, without an engine and everything. And with a terrible fiberglass front end on it and uh which was a piece of junk but but the guy that sold it to me had told me it was really good uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a callison i even talked to him you know he said yeah it's really good it came down and it was it was flimsy and and terrible i had to brace it all up and so forth that's neither here nor there. But I had that on there, and I took that off and threw it away. <laughs> so the car just sat here. And uh, in the meantime, I I had seen in Hemmings an Auburn convertible sedan for sale. And I always sort of liked those things, you know. And this was in North Hollywood, and it had a Chrysler in it. And it was just... Uh, just an original car that somebody had put an engine in, you know. And I went over and looked at it, and I, I thought, you know, that might be fun. That'd be different, you know. And and so I bought the Auburn, and we rebuilt the Auburn, uh, put a big block Chevy in it, and uh, built it as a restaurant. 
You know, it had side mounts and everything. And uh, put a Muncie four-speed in it and uh, 396 big block in it. And then painted up, look stock, you know, had uh, 15-inch CAD spoked wheels on it. So they looked like original. And uh, so that was my street rod. And uh, we moved down here and brought it down and, and uh, started going to some street rod events with the car. And not a race car, just a driver, you know, mm-hmm. and used that for, went to a lot of events with that. And uh, one day I came home uh, from work and my wife says, what about the 32 in the paper? And forever I'd been looking for a 32, you know, and and I even took the L.A. papers, you know, and the San Diego papers to look and see if any of them, knowing full well that if one showed up by the time I got there, it'd be gone. The local paper down here in Vista had an ad for a 32 all apart. And uh, my wife saw it and I came home and she says, what about the 32 in the paper? And she showed it to me, and I thought, oh, my goodness, it was a 32-3 window all apart. So I called a guy up, and he was about five miles down the road, you know, and uh, he said, yeah, I took it all apart. It was a street rod. It had an Ozobiel in it, and uh, took it apart to fix it up, and I never did. And he'd taken it apart in about 1965, and... Uh, and he lived in Whittier at the time, and he'd actually moved it down in pieces, you know. And so I said, yeah, I'd like to see it. Well, why don't you come on the weekend? I said, how about right now? <laughs> you know. So I went right over there, and, and I looked at it, and he opened the garage, and, and uh, here was this body on the frame, everything else stashed here, there, and everywhere else, you know. And, and I looked at it, and it had fenders, and it had everything, you know, that I needed. And uh, even threw in a Chevrolet motor with it he was going to use. And uh, so I bought it and uh, got it back. Actually, our son went with me to get it. He didn't know what we were going for, you know. I said, we got to take the trailer and go over there, you know. And went over there and opened the garage, and he couldn't believe it, (laughs) And I took a picture of it, so I'd have a picture of that. And somewhere I got this picture of of the stack of parts. So I turned around and rebuilt that as, and that's this car, you know, in the background. Mm -hmm. And uh, made it just into a street rod. And uh, so uh, we've enjoyed that for years. That car's been as far back as Ohio and uh, up into Oregon. And, you know, it's I've probably put about 75,000 miles on it. And uh, it's been a good car. I've enjoyed having it. And and what is the other car next? What's the car next to that? Oh, the other right, car right over your shoulder. My old race car, the Forty One <laughs> Willys, that was yeah. sitting in the backyard for years. Uh, and I didn't ever know what I would do with it uh, because you know you think of street rod being thirty twos and things like that. And we went up to Northern Deuce Day that Andy Brizio was putting on in 2000 and I'd been invited to a, a party at Pebble Beach the night before and so I, 
we figured, well, we'll go by the party, and, and uh, we did that. And somebody there said, gee, Donna Roscoe just bought a uh, Willie's with a Chrysler in it, street rod. And so we went by Don's the next day and, and look at his car and, and uh, drove it around the block. And uh, it was a street routed 40 Willys with a Chrysler in it that uh, now resides in La Condrata. But uh, um, I kept thinking the rest of the weekend, gee, maybe I'd break the Willys out and turn it into a street rod. And so that's basically what we did. We pulled it out and redid it, put, uh, put a Chevy in it. I didn't want to have to look at the temperature gauge with a Chrysler and uh, put a turbo hydro and a four nine inch rear end in it. Power steering, power brakes, air conditioning, all the comforts of home type thing. Mm -hmm. And got it done around 2004 and uh, took it on a trip with a group from the Danville Dukes up to Canada that, that summer, you know, had a great trip, a lot of fun. You know, and car ran good, so uh, very few problems. So, and what about the paint job that's on it? Well, I painted it the way it was the last time I run as black, and then uh, the car had run had been lettered by a fellow up in Pasadena, and so I uh, I thought, gee, I wonder if he's still around, and I called Doug Robinson up, horsepower engineering who had given me the guy's name back in 68 when it was painted before. And uh, he said, yeah, he's still still doing it. So guy came down and did the lettering that had done it originally. Sort of a trivia th type thing, but it's sort of a neat thing to me. Anyway. That's very cool. And the car is, is, is sort of neat for me in that it is my old race car, you know, and... Uh, so that that makes it special for me. That's a lot of history with and that I've car. I've owned it since 1958. You know, wow, thirty-five dollars is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but that's been fun. Hmm. But you know, after uh, to get to the book thing that you were interested in, the back in the 80s. Well, maybe I ought to back up. I'm sort of a history nut anyway. I enjoy history uh, of, of things I'm interested in, you know. And uh, I took engineering at USC, and one of the requirements is you had to take a uh, uh, letters, arts, and science class, you know, so to, to broaden your perspective. And uh, I ended up with a California history class. And the teacher was a young guy who was really into it. He really enjoyed the history. And he sort of got me interested in in the history of the California history, but also broadening into other histories, you know. And so I'm that way. Back in the 80s, um, several of the magazines, like Hot Rod and Street Rodder and so forth, started uh, doing a few articles using old pictures of early lakes days, early hot rodding days. And, uh, and I thought that was neat that people could see that stuff. And um, often uh, there were some inaccuracies because, you know, the fellows didn't know. And uh, I thought, gee, 
we ought to try and get some accuracy into this type of thing. And so I, uh, I actually commented in some letters to Street Rider about, uh, commented of some corrections, if you will, you know, and, uh, and they came back and said something to the effect of, well, do you have more information type thing? I ended up doing some articles for Street Rider where I used pictures, some that I had originally, and then I started borrowing pictures to, to try and cover more subjects, you know. My purpose in my mind was to just show what what it was like, what hot rodding was like back in in the earlier days, you know, and, mm-hmm. and of course my my experience actually starts after the war and uh, in that area. So the stuff I was somewhat knowledgeable about was that. But I did articles uh, on uh, uh, lakes racing in the 30s and 40s and uh, also on... You know, I did an article, on, for example, I did an article on the Pearson Coupe, the 36 Coupe, that Street Rider had somebody had sent in a picture of the thir- of a 36 like that. And uh, um, so I commented on it and, and ended up doing an article on it. Uh, and uh, anyway, I did several articles that way. And then... And, uh, I kept borrowing pictures because I didn't have very many, and and I hit everybody I knew that I used to race with or knew, and get pictures. And most guys didn't have much; they were too busy racing to take pictures, mm-hmm. and me included, you know. But often they'd have a girlfriend or a friend who would take some pictures, so you'd come up with some of them. And I loved looking at these pictures, and uh, uh, so often they were pictures of people that I knew or knew of, you know, and. Uh, so it's somewhere around 1986, I thought, you know, I think maybe I'll just do a book to get some of these pictures out so people can see them. Because the pictures all came out of people's albums or shoeboxes and stuff. And, and I, I comment that when the guys pass away, the pictures get thrown away. Because generally, most of the families didn't have the interest in the things, you know. And uh, often their kids were interested in other things anyway. And so I thought, you know, we'll do a book and get the pictures out. So get some pictures out so people can see what it was like, what the cars looked like, what the guys looked like, what they were doing. And I tried to explain to the best of my ability what was going on, what was popular, what the cars, uh, what they had in them, in the way of engines and equipment, and, uh, and you know, just generally everything, including street racing and, mm-hmm. and all that, you know. And uh, so the first book was Hot Rods in the 40s. And uh, I was just hoping people would buy me out of the darn thing because I published it myself because I'd had some experiences with writing an article and then having the editors edit it and sometimes the editing didn't portray what I thought it was supposed to portray they changed the meaning type thing so I decided I just self-publish and uh, I 
did that. I found a printer who would uh, print it for me and uh, a binder who would bind it. And, and uh, then I had to figure out how to sell it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which was, how, yeah, how did you do that? How did you market the books? And, well, I, I really book? ended up uh, uh, talking to the magazines, you know, and telling them I had this thing and talking to some of the the rod shops, you know, like Blair's and uh, and some of these guys I knew anyway, and auto books, you know, and and uh, got them to carry them and and uh, yeah, just like that. And then I started doing doing shows and stuff. You know, I did start doing the Roadster show. I did first Roadster show. I uh, I had the book and I wanted to get in there and I didn't have a booth or anything and and. Eric Vaughn and Peter Eastwood and uh, Burton Burton had a booth. And uh, you know who Eastwood is and, and Eric, of course. We yeah. Is. And uh, Burton Burton owned Casablanca fans at the time. But he was a great hot rod guy. And they had a booth at the Roadster Show. And so Eric says, yeah, you can come in with us, you know. So so I bought into their booth and... and uh, that helped me, you know, I, and, and and the magazines were nice. They 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 gave book reviews, so forth. And I, I hit everything I could on that, you know, without. And then I'd go to local local shows and stuff, and and Rod Runge, you know, San Luis Obispo, and all that. And I just sold them that way, and word of mouth and and stuff helped and I was amazed the, the thing sold pretty well you know and uh, after a while I thought you know I still got a lot more pictures <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and so and I had more people come up you know that uh, uh, said hey I got some pictures you know or I have more pictures that type of thing so the very first book was Hot Rods in the, in Hot the Rods 40s in the 40s and it was all just 40 stuff yeah and, and I was trying to show what was popular and what the cars looked like and uh, what the what the guys were doing, including street racing, and the cl- what the clubs were about, you know, why were there those clubs, and and uh, you know, I listed all the clubs in SCTA and Rosetta and and that type of thing, just information type of deal. Yeah. You know? The um, in the back of my mind, uh, I remember Dean Batcher once told me that. Uh, he wrote a book on Ferraris, or he, he did a book on Ferraris, and he provided all the texts, and somebody else provided all the pictures. And he had so many people compliment him on that book, how great it was, and so forth, you know. And he said a number of people told him that really great, and one of these days they're going to sit down and read it. Ah, <laughs> which really meant that the pictures were what people were really looking at. Yeah, and my um, mm. my um, 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 estimation of hot rodders, particularly in the '80s, was they would probably be interested in looking at the pictures. Questionable whether they'd read it, you know, whether they'd be interested in reading it. Mm-hmm. That was a period when even hot rod art hadn't quite taken off, you know, that it wasn't that popular. Uh, Dean Batcher did a poster, you know, and, and, and I actually did a poster too, and neither of them really sell that great. You know, you didn't make much money on them. But anyway, I, 
I uh, got more pictures and I decided, well, I'm doing it. Why not do another book? You know, and and I was starting to learn how to do it. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know, I hand wrote the the first book, and uh, my wife typed it. You know, that was before I had much in the computer thing. And uh, and and it was about 1986 is when you started the book project, the first book. Probably eighty-seven, yeah. Okay, yeah, and uh, and it was published. In it was 80... published in eighty-eight, I think. Okay, and then the, the second book was only about a year later, and uh, that was uh, Hot Rods as they as, were, as they were, yeah. And that one, I tried to break down into styles. That the way, yeah. And there was a roadster section and a coupe section, and and there was a track roadster section in that one because. I tried to make a point in the first book that a lot of the guys that started into hot rodding or the early hot rodders, a lot of them went into racing and went into the business. You know, people, uh, indie racers like Jack McGrath and Manuel Ayulo and, and, um, and a bunch of them. And, uh, and even the, the smaller racers, the Bruce Robinsons and everything, were strong sprint car racers. You know, Bruce and Don, you know, the... Forgot the driver now. Well, McCluskey used to drive for for Bruce and Don Dable, and uh, so they they knew a lot of those guys. And of course, the track roadster guys. You know, they were Rutman ran track roadsters, Rathman ran track roadsters, and so forth. And Phil Wyan owned one, and uh, so. And Carl and Veda Orr ended up running a track roadster. Yeah, yeah. Carl Orr yeah. was very much in it, and he also got into. Uh, sprint car racing or champ car racing, as they call it that day. And, uh, but I, I tried to point out a little bit that, that the guys, a lot of them went into the business, into styling business, you know, the guys like Shinoda, Shinoda you yeah. know, went into that. And so, Did you, so, were, were you in, looking back on this, do you feel like you were inspired to do this somewhat because of how far hot rodding had gotten away from its roots by the time the 1980s came around. Do you feel like maybe it was the era of the 1980s with kind of kit-based street rods and and, and I'm cars? I'm not sure I understand what you mean on that. Maybe what you're asking is about the period that I came up in, the 50s, the 40s and 50s, was... I, I sort of call the 40s the golden age of hot rodding. That's that's when when it evolved to be what it is. And then from then on, uh, it seemed to be just improving on it, so mm. to speak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and perhaps that's because I remember it as being a wonderful time, uh, or maybe because my eyes were wide open looking at all these these wonderful cars you know that I wanted to have mm-hmm. and uh, but uh, it was a, I you can't believe the number of times at like when I were doing the roadster shows guys would come up and say god you were so lucky to live when you did everything was so great and so perfect and so wonderful and everything and and of course Guys like me and and people my age look back and 
well, I didn't know if it was so wonderful. It was great. It was okay. It was just what it was. But, <laughs> but I understand that a lot of people look back at that, uh, the cars and, and what the guys were doing and the fun they were having and, and uh, with a little nostalgia type thing. Mm-hmm. I think it was a great time. You know, I, we had a lot of fun and everything. I guess maybe I mean in the 1980s, because I, not that I was out west out here, but with the shows that I was going to in the 1980s, I don't remember ever seeing a car that represented the roots of hot rodding, like a flathead powered black, all Ford based 32 Roadster. I didn't see those cars out in the world at that time. No, I so. think I think you're correct. I think what happened was uh, in the 50s, you know, we started to get into more customized show-type cars. Uh, even in hot rodding, you know, you started to get into 32s with, with white running boards and things like that, uh, which they didn't have earlier. And, and that continued through the 70s. You know, the 70s hot rodding, there was a period there where you had the resto rod, which was was similar to this, you know, type of thing. But uh, somewhere in the 80s, and, and uh, I think I got a credit, I don't know if I, 80s is right, probably 90, beginning of 1990, I got a credit, Bruce Meyer, for creating some of the, interest in in the old style car he became interested in the in the early cars and and promoted that with all his friends mm-hmm. and restoring them back and some people like kirk white restored uh, the ray brown car and and uh, uh, some other people like that and, and suddenly it was popular to go back to a flathead powered car I mean, most of us don't want a flathead-powered car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was popular to replicate that. And, uh, and uh, of course, I think it's neat. I love seeing them and everything. And I got a flathead car in the other room, but uh, but I don't travel with it very much. Sure, yeah. But, uh, well, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I uh, one of the things I'm curious about, because you're just now starting to talk about your second book, um, hot rods as they were, yeah. which was published in maybe 90 or 90. I think it was 89 or 90. Yeah. 90. Do you remember a time when it may have occurred to you that suddenly there are these young guys showing up at these shows with, with either, uh, saved and preserved original old hot rods World War II era hot rods or early 50s hot rods, or they're building cars in that style with those same parts that have that feel and look of those cars that you remember when you were a kid. Was there a time when you started to see that and thought, my God, it looks like there could be a, a movement happening? And I, and I, I wonder. I don't think any lights lit up in my brain. Yeah. On that. There were always some people who were interested in, in uh, that. People like Peter Eastwood, you know, he's, he's yeah, he never he's was not interested that, in that. Know? That's right, and, yeah. And of course, uh, Shaporis and Jake uh, came up with their their styles, uh, that type of thing. And there were some cars still around, like like Bernie Krauss, uh, uh, 
Bernie Couch had had his roadster. When I borrowed a picture from him, it wasn't running, you know. And I said, "You got to get that thing running," you know. And he mm. did, and he's he's had more fun with that thing. He restored his his uh, thirty two roadster to running, you know, a flathead. Uh, it's a car he's had since about forty six. Yeah, and, full uh, fendered cards. Yeah, blue, and, I think, uh, right? Two tone blue. I borrowed a bunch of pictures from him. super nice guy. His health is not real good though, and I, I haven't seen him. I don't think I saw him the do stay at the Peterson this time. And somebody, oh, I was at do stay, and there's a fella, uh, Rob Johnson, uh, lives over in Prescott. And his father was Butch Johnson, who used to be in Pasadena, who I knew. He's researching the history of the Outriders Club. He's a member of the Outriders, you know. And uh, I gave him some information when we were over there, and he came back and said that he wanted to uh, talk to a couple of people. One of them was an old outrider and knew its family, and the other was Bernie Couch. And, and mm. I don't know if Bernie's still alive, but mm. uh, well, well, he just mentioned that. But the fact that he mentioned it makes me think that maybe he is. I haven't seen him for a couple of years. I don't know. Mm. Nice guy. He's Fullerton, Fullerton mm. area. Uh, anyway, he was in... Uh, Southern California Roadster Club, I guess it was. Anyway, digress. So the, getting back, so your second book, you put your second book Second was book was an effort to just show the different styles and also to show the difference between like streamliners and lakesters and, and uh, track roadsters. And I put a little bit of drag racing in it. The first uh, uh, couple of years, uh, Santa Ana and Saugus, just, just talk about that. You know, because I had some of those pictures and mm-hmm. really an effort just to tell what I know, if you will, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that thing was selling fairly well. So, you know, more pictures, did the third book, the Hot Rod Memories. Yep. And um, that one I did a little different. I, I tried to show some of the manufacturers that were involved in hot riding, you know, showing that showing that they had been involved, guys like Edelbrock and Howard and and Ray Brown and everybody else, you know. And most of them had gone into the business by then, Phil Lyon and so forth. And And that book would have come out in early well, It was about ninety two, I think. Yeah. Not, yeah. not I'd have to look, but I think it's about ninety two. And uh, by then I was figuring out how to do it, so to speak, you know, and, and I'd, I think I changed printers on that one there to get that squared away. And same deal, though, by, by now my wife was still typing them, but now on the, I don't know when the computer came in, or, but she was typing them. Terrible for her to type on typewriter and mm. then have me go through and make corrections you have to retype <laughs> the damn thing <laughs> computer's a whole different world you yeah know. yeah and then i got to thinking you know i'd raced the supercharge class for 12 years or something and uh, i thought and i had some of the supercharge guys hit me at the shows, you know, and say, hey, why don't you do a book on us, you know? And I thought, well, you know, maybe we could. Interestingly, when in the, when I started that thing, 
There was a real question in my mind whether hot rodders would buy a book. They weren't readers, you know, and uh, hot rod art hadn't taken off then. And uh, so I was really concerned of whether it would go. And, and it, you know, it built slowly. And, but uh, it was going okay. I was having fun, you know. And, and the best part for me was meeting so many people and hearing from people. You know, I was getting letters from all over the country and from other countries. And, and uh, uh, it was just neat. And I'd go to shows and I'd run into guys that I knew but hadn't met for years you know mm -hmm. including guys i'd raced against and that type of stuff and and it was just a lot of fun you mm, know i and, bet and so by then you know the roadster show uh uh eastwood had pulled out and then eric and i were the only ones left on the booth you know mm. so but that was fun you know and and, and eric's a super nice guy and uh, had guys asking about, uh, you know, doing a book on the gassers, you know. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, I could do that, but it's too big a subject. There's too many and too many people, and it's all over the country and so forth. And up until now, I'd been doing books on something I was familiar with, that I had some experience and I thought I was fairly knowledgeable about. Yeah, but when you open to the gassers, you know, I was knowledgeable about a portion, but not all over. Because, you know, you get into the gassers, uh, the east was big in gassers, you know, the Ohio, that area, the Midwest, there were a lot of them. And we had a lot out here, but not... Uh, not any more than they had there, you know. So anyway, I, de I decided, you know, I could do it on the supercharged cars, just restrict it just to them because I could get enough information on that uh, to fill out what I didn't know. And uh, so I, I did a book called Supercharged Gas Coops, and it was strictly about the A, B, and C gas supercharged cars. I, I didn't do the gas, the rest of the gassers. It was a bigger project than I knew how to handle, you know. And uh, so I was able to do the supercharged car, and I was able to get a lot of pictures thanks to um, you know, one follow-up in San Francisco really helped me. Uh, and um, I got the word out to guys back east and, and guys like Junior Thompson and... and uh, Paul Pittman and so forth helped me get the word out. And so, and I called everybody I knew, you know, and that was running that stuff. And I talked to uh, guys like Wyand and Blair and <coughs> Escondir and Joe Paisano and so forth. And mm. uh, I got a bunch of pictures and I was able to put together enough to, and, and the word got out, so I got guys like Bob Ida back east uh, sent me his stuff, and some of the other, and, and uh, Junior Thompson got George Montgomery to send me some stuff, and, and so it was sort of interesting, you know, the whole story of, of borrowing the pictures and everything is uh, a lot of guys, you know, didn't have much, and some guys had a lot. They were reticent to loan it to you because they had had experiences that uh, they didn't get them back. Yeah. And uh, I, I talked to Jack Chrisman, you know, and, and I had 
back in the fuel days, I'd known him a little bit, you know, because we'd raced and 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 uh, I said, and of course Jack had gone on into the uh, funny car stuff and everything. And I said, Jack, have you got some pictures I can borrow? And he came back and says, you know, he says my wife will not let me loan any of them because we've lost lost pictures before oh. i said i understand you know mm. I, I perfectly well understand that and i tried to make it a point that i got every picture back to whoever i borrowed them from because it was important to me to do that oh know? yeah yeah and my only bad comment so to speak i borrowed some pictures from kong jackson and uh and I'd known Kong for years before, you know, and he loaned me a bunch of pictures. One of the books, I had a picture of his roadster with, uh, let's see if I got this backwards. I had his, a picture of his roadster and I borrowed uh, some pictures from him and I had that same picture with a big V8 drawn on the side of the um, cowl. And uh, I didn't use that picture. I had another picture, same picture, that I'd gotten from Bill Coleman, who had been in the GCRC, who was a good friend of Kong's. And he had the picture, the same picture. Kong's picture had been modified. Somebody had taken white ink or something, you know, and inscribed a V8 on the cowl, you know. Mm. And so I used it without. And Kong says, you didn't give me your picture, my picture back. And I said, that wasn't your picture. Ah. <laughs> that was Bill Coleman's picture. But I tried to make sure everybody got their pictures back. Um, and I really appreciated the, the loan of all those pictures. There's some neat stuff. And, oh, uh, boy, that's for sure. Unfortunately for me, is a lot of them become second and third generation pictures, so the quality isn't quite as good as, as I'd like to have. But I felt it was important, the, the subject was important. Yes. To, to see the cars and the people that were involved with them and that type of thing. Anyway, I did the... the uh, Supercharged gas coupe book, and and actually that's been my bestseller. Uh, I sold more of those than any of them. And of course, after that, it was uh, let's see which one. Did I do the Aldred book next? I think I did the Aldred book after that, and uh, and that book sold pretty well because mm. now you're getting into younger people. You know, the guys that would be more interested in the '40s, '50s stuff were guys more my age, you know, that kind of thing, where the guys that uh, were interested in the, the 60s drag racing stuff, your age and that type of thing. And uh, so so that, hmm. I did the Fuel Allard book, and I, I commented in the book, I never ran one except I did run a fuel coupe, which was the, the precursor of the, but I did know the guys, some of the guys that were doing. I went out to some of the meets with them, and and so I knew a lot of what was going on. And and but there I had to uh, uh, resort more to pictures from from the uh, professional photographers mm -hmm. to get some of the stuff I wanted. So I got some Jerry Adliff and uh, um, oh God, I can't. Eh, can't think of the guy's name. Uh, but I got several of them now. Charles Stratton gave me some for the uh, supercharge. 
I bought those, actually. And uh, um, anyway, the Alder book sold pretty well. And Mm. uh, and then I went on and did another hot rod book because I still had a lot of pictures, and I was really just trying to get them out because I'd sort of told most of the things I knew about what things were like. And uh, one of my interesting points is that when I did the second book, you know, what I did in all the books, in the back of the book, I put a couple of pages of me, about me, because when I look at a book, I, I always want to know what the author knew mm-hmm. about the subject, or is he just, in modern day, is he just looking on the internet and mm. gathering a bunch of data, you know? Yeah. So yeah. In, the, in the back of my books, I always put, a little bit about me, you know, my background or whatever, and what trying to show that I was I was there, if you will, you know, and maybe a couple of pictures. My second book, I used, man, maybe the first book, I used a picture of me at the lakes, standing by the cord, you know, and my kids looked at. And the first thing they saw was the rolled-up Levi cuffs, you know, that were rolled up about that, because that's the way, way we wore them. You yeah. know? And, and I always thought that was one of the interesting things about a lot of the pictures was the styles, what the guys were wearing and what kind of hats they, were, they mm-hmm. had, you know, and, and uh, that type of thing. Anyway, uh, I did the Alder book, and then I did, went back and did... Uh, well, authentic hot rods, I guess, was uh, going back into the, and all of all of my hot rod books only went up to 1955. Uh, that was the era that I was trying to cover from roughly 35 to 55. Admittedly, not an awful lot of stuff in the 30s, a little bit, but not a lot. But you got to remember in those days, uh, particularly in the 30s, there were there was uh, almost no press coverage at all. And and people didn't have cameras like they'd had later and yeah. so forth. Yeah. 40s got a little better. There started to be some press coverage. You know, 48, when when Hot Rod Magazine came out, they started to do some of that stuff. And then in 51, you know, you got start of some uh, racing papers, you know, and then Drag News started in, I think, 54. And... Uh, and there were some hop-up magazines started doing some stuff back in 51. So uh, there was some publicity and people started to know names of who some of these people were and everything. Yeah. And before, you know, you could run at the lakes, like you could run the lakes in 48 or something, and you can turn a fabulous time, and maybe 100 people would find out about it, you know. But uh, later on, that changed, fortunately. Yeah. But what I was trying to do was was show that and and show when uh, Bob Pearson went 123 in his 36 coupe, that was impressive, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the same way, and some of the other guys, you know. So that was my purpose. You know? yeah. And show the guys like... Lou Bainey running a 32 coupe type thing back then. And of course, later drag racers know him because of all his dragsters and everything. So, so that was, that was a thing. And I, I did the authentic hot rods and I did some more drag racing pictures in there, including a picture of Shinoda's coupe in there. And I put a picture, I put that picture. It was a Pomona picture of the car. And right below it, I picture, put a picture at Pomona of my car, 
the 32 with the fenders and everything. And, uh, but, uh, and then the last one I did, oh, then I did a dragster book, Dragsters and Funny Cars. I thought I, I had a lot of stuff on that, but I thought, that's too big a subject. I don't know how to do that, and, you know. And I finally did it, and uh, uh, it came out fairly good, I guess. And, um, but I mixed both dragsters and funny cars uh, in there, and I just tried to show some of the performances, you know, how, how it evolved, so to speak, how the engines evolved from Oldsmobiles to Chryslers and, and how the speeds were evolving, that type of thing. And how some people, like the bustle bomb, shook people up and and garlets. I was sort of a side thing. I was in uh, I was over visiting Phil Wyan one day. We were talking and in there and in his his business and a station wagon came in towing a dragster, and it was Don Garlitz. First trip out to to race out here. Wow. And it was sort of interesting, you know. That was when he was running uh, carbureted. Yeah. Before before he found out that the blower thing was the way to go. Yeah, know, boy. He, which he found out very quickly. Yes. It, uh, what a surprise that must have been when he yeah, it, uh, pulled into the pits and saw all those blowers on those cars. Well, yeah. he ran very good with a, with a carbureted car. He sure did. Yeah. yeah. I think Crispin was the one that that surprised him, I guess, if you will. But mm. um, anyway, I did the dragster book, and and uh, then I did one more book, I, uh, the the idea to just put pictures out that people could see that I had a lot of pictures, you know, that that I really enjoyed looking at. You know, I'd look at these pictures, and they're so-and-so, or, or I remember this, and or I didn't know this happened, you know, that kind of thing. I thought, you know, get them out there so people can see them. So the last book I called Old Hot Rod Scrapbooks, and it was just meant to be sort of a scrapbook. And I tried to put information as, as much as I could with them. That's one thing I tried to do with the book was put information about who it was, and maybe the club they were in, in the case of in the case of Lakes Racers, and maybe what kind of engine and what kind of equipment they were running and the speeds they were running, just whatever I could put in about them, you know, and then comments about the different styling of this or that, you know, comments about thirty nine taillights were popular on most of the roadsters and things like that, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so you know, those kind of just information you might be interested in if you're you're interested in nostalgia. Yeah, and and I now you know from going to the shows and everything, I've had so many people comment that they built a car and they use the books as a as a guide of what looked good to them. You know that type of thing, what the guys were doing. I point out that there were a lot of things that were done back then that you don't realize that. Uh, you think are new, and, and guys tried them back then, too. And I put in a lot of pictures of not-so-neat rot rods because that's what was around, you know. Everybody didn't have a lot of money in those days, and they were building the cars they could afford, and most of them were work in progress all the time. They were driving them while they were de-painting them and, and painting them and working on the engine and so forth. So yeah. But, uh, so I use pictures to show that, you know. And uh, well, people uh, used what they could find and what they could afford. Yeah, yeah, we all 
uh, went to the wrecking yards and bought everything out of the wrecking yards and uh, for everything you could think of. And of course, parts were more common for for the early cars then. You could find 32s cheap and you could find 34s and stuff like that. And parts were, were inexpensive, but we didn't have any money either, so... It's all relative. It was re- yeah, exactly. You know, it, uh, the hamburger was only 15 cents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you get all us old guys talking about how wonderful it was because the parts were, everything was cheap. You could find things, but I don't know. It's all relative. Yeah. You know. Well, it's, it's nice to hear you say that that you have the, you have on a pretty regular basis, it sounds like. at have, these have sh- what? It sounds like on a pretty regular basis at these shows, you had people coming up and oh, yeah. saying, you know, I used your book to research the build of my car. And Well, I'll give, I'll give you one story. It was the Roadster show about, uh, yeah, I don't remember, 10 years ago, maybe a little more. A fellow came up to me and he says, I think I got a car that was pictured in your book. And... It was in, I think, Authentic Hot Rods. I'd gone to a reunion, a Pasadena Junior College reunion, and I didn't go to Pasadena Junior College. I went to John Muir, which was another school in Pasadena at the time. It's now a high school, but it was a junior college then. But my wife went to Pasadena, so we Mm -hmm. decided we'll go to this reunion with some of her friends. And we were at the reunion in Pasadena, and... I ran into an old friend, an old hot rod friend from Pasadena that I had run around with around 1949, and uh, he had built a 32 three window, and a very and a, one I really liked. It had a flathead in it. He got a flathead. He bought the engine from George Fabry, who was an upholsterer, did roadster upholstering, and he was in the Pasadena Roadster Club, and. Uh, Built the car, uh, just a restaurant type car, you know. It was gray primer, and um, anyway, I I got pictures from him, and or I asked him if he had any pictures, and he was living in D.C. at the time. He worked for the government, and he was retiring, and he sent me a couple of pictures. And I, I had always liked that car because, you know, we'd run around together. And I lost track of him when he went off to UCLA and I went to SC and I, never, I don't think I ever saw him again. Hmm. And he, he didn't stay in hot riding either. You know, he, he became a real person. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, he sent me these pictures. I put the pictures in the book. This guy came up and this guy lived in New Mexico, Albuquerque, I think. And he says, I think I've got this car. And one of the pictures, there were two pictures. One of them showed it uh, with a door open so you could see the upholstery. The other showed the car with a, at the lakes with a number on it. And the lakes was my number because they'd run it under my name that week. Mm. You know, my, my car wasn't running that week, so it ran his under my, because he wasn't a member. And... Uh, Anyway, he says, I think I got this car. I bought this car in, in uh, Temple City, and it was a, sort of an abandoned car, no engine type thing. But all the upholstery was in it. And he says, the upholstery looked exactly like this. 
you know. And he since turned it into a street rod, you know. And I said, well, let me give you this guy's number, and you can call him and talk to him. And so I gave him the fellow's number. In the meantime, the guy had moved to Tucson, Arizona, the guy who had built the car. And about, oh, I, may, I don't know, a year later or, or maybe another roadster show afterwards, the guy who had purchased the car in New Mexico came up to me and he says, I contacted the guy and we compared notes and everything and it is his old car. I drove down to Tucson and gave him a ride in it. I thought that was deep. Well, it doesn't get better than that. Well, not for me. It it, it made it worth it, so to speak. Mm. And I had, uh, what's his name? Brian Bronkhurst was a fellow who, who um, from Wisconsin, I think, who had been talked into getting a roadster by Bruce Meyer. You know, you, Bruce had told many of his friends, you got to have one of these. <laughs> you know, and I, I credit Bruce for a lot of the interest in, in uh, the traditional style cars. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, he's a great, you, great promoter of it. Oh, yeah. Terrific. You know, yep. he, he got that, uh, um, the Doan Spencer Roadster and had it restored back to the way Doan had it. And, and um, and I've talked to several of Bruce's friends that commented how much he had leaned on them to get cars. Well, this fellow in Wisconsin huh. had bought a car, and uh, they it had been sold to him on the basis that it was a car pictured in my book. I used a picture of a car on the Pasadena Reliability Run, and I didn't know whose car it was, but it was a 32 Roadster, and it was a neat picture, and it was one one of the pictures Peter Eastwood had loaned me, you know. And uh, this fellow bought the car based on the fact that it was this car. And apparently he, and I don't know who else, they'd been looking at it and looking at it, and they decided, you know, they didn't think it was that car. But there was another picture in the book of a car that he thinks that that was that car, you know. And they they had fooled around with that. And that car had belonged to a guy out in Pomona. And uh, I, um, I said, well, you know, I don't know where he is, but um, I know a guy in Pomona who or in Chino that grew up with that group of guys and he, and he would probably know something about that. So uh, I gave him the name and so he contacted him and he gave him some names to contact and it turned out that he had this car, uh, he really had the car from this guy in Pomona and uh, it turned out it was a guy that I had street raced years ago. <laughs> oh, man. But uh, <laughs> but I always thought that was so neat that he was a, and I talked to him several times at Broncos, you know, and I said, you know, you're really having fun chasing this thing down, aren't you? Because he had to go through a series of oh, things yeah. to get it. And he did. He said he really enjoyed the chase. Of doing, and I think we all do want something like that. Oh, sure. You know. Yeah, so, yeah. But... Uh, 
but that to me has been just a wonderful thing to me where people have been able to use the pictures either for ideas or for tracing things down and and uh, so and and I know I've I've heard people say that they were able to identify a car from that the other well, side of that coin is I've had a lot of people call me trying to identify a 32 Roadster they found and you know and you stop to think how many there were and, yeah and yeah. other than telling them to look in the doors for new old newspapers and mm -hmm. because everybody stuffed newspapers in the doors to deaden the sound you know yep and guys will pull out papers that'll say Los Angeles 1951 or whatever yeah you know, type yeah. thing but the books have been fun. You know, I, I've met so many people. It's, it's just given me an opportunity to to hear all these stories. You know, my my comment on that is you hear all these wonderful stories, and some of them are even true. <laughs> but but you do. And, and also, it's filled in a lot of blanks for me. You know, whatever happened to some people. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so many hot rodders particularly in the 40s, uh, right after the war, so many guys coming back from the war and they got into hot rodding. But most of them then got married and got into normal lives, so they were out of it. Uh, only some of the real hardcore guys stayed with it, you know, and a lot of them did, you know, and a lot of them got into the business, went to work for speed equipment businesses and so forth. So, but you find an awful lot of hot rudders were in it for a period of five years or plus or minus, and then they got families and work intervened, and those they were never. A lot of them were still car guys. A lot of them ended up with nice cars, sports cars, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but they weren't into hot running anymore. But yeah, it's an it's an important part of the story because I think uh, I think so many people assume that. Everybody was like, you know, uh, Isky or, or somebody that if you ran the dry lakes in the 40s, you stayed with it your whole life and you were this lifelong hot rodder. But so many guys, it's just something they did when they were young. So you do when you're young, you know. It, it was just and a, then other things get in the way. Yeah, know? yeah. You have to be sort of dedicated to stay with it and everything. Yeah. You have to be lucky to marry a girl that'll put up with you. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. But um, no, it. But uh, I found that with with uh, with doing the shows, I'd very often have somebody come up that used to run and uh, mm. no longer. And of course, for me, uh, it was. Do you have any pictures? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have any pictures but, of me uh, and night? Yeah, nineteen. A lot of them, you know, a lot yeah. of them would be guys that I remember had known or knew the names of. You know, that mm -hmm. type of thing, and. Uh, and I still run into some stuff, you know, like do the local Fallbrook car show and a and, uh, uh, guy came up, do you remember me, you know? And I said, oh, my God, you know. And it was Dick Martin, and Dick Martin, not oh, the wow. one you're thinking, a different Dick Martin. Oh, okay. This guy was in, belonged to the Coops Club back in uh, 52, and, and he raced the lakes and... Uh, and ran Bonneville, and they set records and everything, and and then he got out of it, you know, and he got into the business. Although he he had a crankshaft grinding business, among other things, but mostly construction. Mm -hmm. And he now lives down in about ten miles or fifteen miles south of me. So the only time I see him is the shows. But he's an example of somebody that was in it uh, seriously, and then got out. 
He was from the Inglewood area up there. That, uh, and, and a lot of people are that way. I, I, I commented, it's interesting. You know, I don't know if you want all this trivia, but... Uh, of I, course. I, I find it interesting <laughs> that, you know, I go to breakfast Saturday mornings down in a local place here. Uh, normally about anywhere from 20 to 40 cards, you know. We go down and tell all the lies we know, and then... And then I go up with a small group and have breakfast. And uh, I comment that when I started doing some of this stuff, years ago when we did this stuff, years ago being, uh, you know, I've been into street running since 74, I guess. So so when you did stuff like this back in, uh, we'll just say, 1980 or 1985 uh, type thing, I, I felt that probably half of the guys there had drag race, had been involved in drag race. Hmm. Maybe not real seriously, but more than once or twice, you know, that type yeah. of thing. They yeah. were all drag racers type thing. But today you go into them, you're lucky, I think, for there to be 10% of them that are drag racers or have been drag racers. You know? Because drag racing's changed. It's be- it's become professional. It was it a... Was, uh, Everybody did it type hobby type thing. Now yeah. it's too expensive and professional, and I'm not complaining about. It. I'm just saying that's the change. You know, a young guy can't just go out and drag race very well. Yeah. yeah. So it's that that change and everything. Yeah. Well, you know, I just want to make sure that this gets said because I feel like I feel like you're downplaying the effects your books have had on hot rodding a little bit, if you don't mind me saying that. Um, Because I happened, I'm 48, and I discovered your books when they came out. And I was really mostly just interested in muscle cars. What did you find interesting? What was interesting to me, and this might have something to do with the fact that I'm from back east, and I, I never, ever, ever saw cars like are pictured in your earliest books the kind of world war ii era hot rods i never saw cars like that back east and probably because it just the weather and everything else involved it that just wasn't the type of car that people built even back in the day and when i saw those photos for the first time i just was overwhelmed with the feeling of it was like seeing caveman drawings (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's how it felt to me. I, I thought, oh my God, this this is the beginning of it. This is what it looked like when it started. And I never knew that. I never knew what it looked like when it started. I didn't know what the cars looked like. I didn't know how fast the cars were. I didn't know the cars could even be that fast. I didn't know you could have a flathead powered 32 Roadster in the 1940s that would go 125 miles an hour. You know that was built by a teenager. That that was all news to me, and and almost more than any of that was the because I'm kind of a history buff myself. The impact of of the war on it and how it how it advanced the hobby from from 1940 to 1949. There's so much advancement as far as speed equipment and new materials and technology, and so for kind of the first time, I was. I, like seeing behind the curtain, and that seemed infinitely more 
fascinating to me than making my Chevelle go faster mm. at the drag strip, which is plenty fun and cool and interesting yeah, on its yeah. own. But there was something more about taking these basic kind of almost uh, agriculture designs that Henry Ford had come up with, these these things that could survive on ruddy dirt roads and take that primitive technology and not just make something that's fast and that performs three times what he ever intended it to, but they're beautiful. There's something very timeless and beautiful about that roadster silhouette, for example, and seeing photo after photo after photo and reading the names and seeing the dates and the locations, it just blew my world wide open. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm telling you this, honestly, I knew in the moment that I would never turn back from it. I knew that that, well, this is my new path and I'm never going to get bored with this. And, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's damn near 30 years later since I saw your first book and I haven't changed. Mm. I, I'm still just as fascinated with it now as, as I was then. And now I own a, a car from that era. And, you know, it's, it's the greatest experience to get to kind of time travel like that and get behind the wheel of one of those and hear that flathead fire up and smell it when it's running. And, <laughs> and just every, the feel the weight of the car, you know, and, and kind of realize, wow, guys used to run around in packs of these things and it's the most wonderful thing. So just as one hot rodder from my age group, I certainly thank you well, for I, what you I did. I appreciate it. I, uh, it's wonderful to hear because, you know, my purpose was just really to let to let people see what it was like, you know, and maybe learn a little bit how it was like, you know, so, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. You know, I've, I've enjoyed the fact that a lot of people have used the books for ideas, and and that's, and every once in a while somebody will say, I I keep the book beside my desk, you know, to look at this or that, something like that, and, and you know, I we all do the same thing when you when you're building a car, you want to look at other ideas and see which ones you like and this type mm-hmm. of thing. So that that's good. Well. I, I really mean it. I'm glad I got to say that to you. I've I've wanted well, to tell I, you that for a long time. I really appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, and I can't thank you enough for your time today, and for sitting down and sharing your story. Well, it's, thank you for coming. I, it's really uh, been been great. I really enjoyed this. Uh, telling all the lies about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the important thing though is you know I'm just one of the many guys that were into hot running in the early days and and uh you know everybody accomplished something type thing so mm. and i am just happy that i was able to get the books out and and uh, give people a chance to learn about what was going on some of the younger people have never seen it you know that type of thing such as perhaps yourself and There's because lot, it was a good yeah. period and and it, uh, it was sort of, as I say, the 40s were what I call the golden age because that's when the whole thing hatched and and got to where we are today, you know, type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, thank you for doing all that work and sharing all that stuff with, with everybody. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Don.
Well, all right, folks, there you go. There you have it. There it is. Another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. Special thanks once again to Don Montgomery. What a guy. Thank you so much for everything that you did and for giving of your time so generously. That that right there was an entire day of Don's time and he was happy to do it and I'm sure we could have come back the next day and he would have done it all again and uh, given us even more. As always, special thanks to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. Our PR person is Angela Helton with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes, technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan, and as always, all Rodcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller. He's always doing the heavy lifting, and he's always keeping us honest, so we really appreciate that. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. And believe me, without their generosity and passion for this work, None of this would be possible. As always, if you'd like to learn more about the Foundation, just hop on over to our website, ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise or simply by just making a donation. You can also follow us across our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where we'll provide you with daily posts consisting of historical images pulled from the Foundation archives as well as information on future episodes of the broadcast so once again huge huge thanks to the great don montgomery for his generosity for being such a great friend of the american hot rod foundation and for everything he contributed to our great american pastime throughout his entire life we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll join us again next time right here for another Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.